The trick is, how do you cultivate this flood like chi? How do you position yourself in this dance between pulling it and thereby destroying it? Like whether you're talking about medical practice or personal cultivation, government, education, agriculture, everything. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. Kin is not a term that was used in my family. We talked about family with a particular tone of voice that suggested the relationship of blood held something that included both privilege and responsibility. But the term kin was foreign and, frankly, reserved for lower-class people, hill people, as my folks would say. People like us, we didn't talk like that. But I've rather edged closer to the black sheep side of the family habitually questioned the norms, never took just because for an answer. I like the word kin. It implies a connection that might include blood, but also touches on spirit. Kin draws a wide boundary. It includes trees and seashores, other animals, stones, and thunderstorms. Our current world has us increasingly sectioned off by our differences and identities, but kinship moves in the opposite direction. It's like water that flows to the low places and thereby unites. It's the force that can allow for connection regardless of difference. Kinship works by claiming. It's a proactive inclusion that redraws the usual boundaries of us and them. And in doing so, allows for more sacred connection. I'm reminded of my daughter watching a show on Octopi and deciding she'd no longer eat them. That is a bond of kinship. Kinship means we change our shape and redefine the boundaries of me. It might be more about spirit than blood. Oddly enough, blood might be the least powerful glue in these connections. The connections of kinship are the connections of heart, an expanding, not contracting sense of identity. Kin relations foster strength and diversity. They generate a wider field of connection and soften the feelings of separation and isolation. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love 
was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Ponsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app switch to book a one-on-one -on -one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code CHEOLOGICAL at the time of sign-up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Sun Samyao is famous for many things, one of which was his take on ethics and how doctors orient to the world, society, and their patients. The world is full of a multitude of relationships, and as physicians, we have responsibility to use our skills in a way that brings benefit to those whom we serve. And because knowledge, power, and position all influence how we are with others, medical ethics and appropriate use of authority are issues that we can't avoid. Using our position to influence others for our own gain is clearly a problem. But abdicating our authority is not a way out of this puzzle box. In this conversation with Sabina Vilms, we discuss medical ethics, the role of de virtue, the dynamics of power, and how Yangsheng is a core component of being a practitioner. Let's get into this. Here we go. 
Sabina Wilms, welcome back to Geological. <laughs> Thank you for having me back. It's always a pleasure. It's always fun. You're like a frequent flyer over here. <laughs> I get to land and come in, enjoy some sunshine and good company. And then we both part ways again, I suppose. Yeah, well, it's like the flight of migrant birds or something. No, I love talking to you. You know, you ask great questions and you always have a different angle. I see something and then you get it from a different angle. And I, I love our conversations. First of all, this is what's great about friendship. Mm -hmm. And secondly, it's wonderful to be involved in a profession long enough and have put enough blood, sweat, and you know whatever else into it that it's supported you long enough to keep doing it and then have colleagues that you can have conversations with where know the answers to what we are noodling on. We have some inquiry. <laughs> we may have some kinds of expertise. We certainly have some, some kinds of experience. But like answer is or what the outcome is going to be, we never know. And sometimes we have agreements and sometimes it's like some pushback. Like, no, like what? Wait, that doesn't make sense to me. Explain yourself. And, and not in a mean way. And I love how we do that, where when you say something that doesn't make sense to me, or I say something that doesn't make sense to you, based on our different backgrounds, oh, you have something to add, or you have something to straighten out my story that I have in my head. You have a piece that I'm missing, and we grow from each other. Yes, we have pieces that the other is missing. Just like an old married couple. <laughs> well, there's good and bad married couples. Or a newly married couple or any relationship, really, any great functional relationship. Enough similarity that there's a compatibility and ability to have a connection and then enough differences that you can learn a dang thing or two. Yeah. Because otherwise, how boring would that be? Yeah, I always learn from you. Really? Every geological conversation that you have, every one of your offerings, every one of your seminars, they're awesome. I love you. All right. So you're saying this is worthwhile. I should keep doing this. Of course. Of course. I'll do whatever I can to support you, as you know. Well, you know, annual membership is great. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I know. No, I, I think, I mean, you've been at it for decades. For decades. You've been at it for how many? We're not decades? podcasting. Well, whatever you're doing, you've been having conversations. You've been asking questions, mostly practitioners. Mm. You've been asking questions for decades. You know, when I was younger, I was more uncomfortable, like asking questions like in a class, right? Because everybody wants to look like they're kind of smart or like they're getting the material, Yeah. right? Oh, the teacher's talking. And well, you're all getting that, aren't you? And I, you know, and sometimes I was, and sometimes I'm like, what the fuck? I don't have no idea what this person's talking. And especially in, in the beginning of learning Chinese medicine, because you don't know anything. You know, at times I'd hear teachers talking to us, and I just wouldn't be getting it. And I think, okay, well, they're way smarter than me and way more experienced, and and maybe I'll get it in five years. I'll just like knuckle under, maybe in five years I'll understand it. And sometimes that was true. Yeah. But what I came to realize is sometimes, and this actually did come from asking questions, 
sometimes the teacher didn't really understand it themselves, or yeah. they had some kind of a highfalutin idea, their own theory of like the universe, and it just didn't land with anything. And, and when I would push on it, it would get all squidgy. It's like it didn't hold together. And, and that's when I started to realize, oh, it's really important to ask when you don't know and keep asking until you do. I'm learning this. I'm teaching this really advanced classical Chinese class right now. Like, it's so stressful and it's a total dream. It's like, I can't believe I get 18 people who are like incredibly knowledgeable translators in their own right. And they're all, I'm teaching them classical Chinese. And they're asking really hard questions. And Wonderful. Having to prepare, I'm telling you, Michael, I'm sweating. It's so intense. And they're asking questions or they're pushing back where they have an opinion. And sometimes I'm really clear, no, I'm sorry, that's wrong. And then I have to be like, okay, why is it wrong? Mm -hmm. But other times I'm like, hmm, I have to think about that. And yeah, you have to be really confident in who you are to be able to say that to respond to somebody pushing back against you as a teacher and be like, oh, you're right. I've always read this passage in this way, but, oh, this is really interesting. And why do I know that's right or wrong? Or could it be that I'm wrong? Or could it just be an alternate way of reading a text? Yeah, it's a good question, isn't it? And you don't get that until you've really had that kind of engagement. Yeah. You know, it's not quite a fist fight, but it's more like grappling. It's like wrestling. I'm almost feeling like I was down at the beach with a few friends a couple days ago, and there's this huge tarp that got blown up like sometime this winter. And it's huge. And there was enough of us that we all looked at each other. We've been walking by it. It's like two miles down the beach. Mm. And we all looked at each other. We're like, we've been looking at this piece of tarp falling apart, being a real hazard to potential whales, sea lions, who knows what. And we were all like, no, we're going to pull it. We're going to get rid of all the sand and all the crabs in it. And we're going to fold it up. And there were six of us. And we pulled it like two miles to the road. And it was really hard work, but we all pulled on it together. So that's what I feel like. I love that image. It was really, really cool. Yeah, was, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we were kind of the riffraff. So we're not the millionaires that actually have the million dollar mansions down by the beach, but we're, and the million dollar mansions down by the beach want to shut it down and privatize it and keep the beach for themselves. And, so we were like, okay, we're going to do a really good deed here and clean up the beach. And and then we dumped it in the million dollar guy's yard because we were not going to drag it up the hill to our road. And he's got a big truck. And I knocked on his door and I'm like, excuse me, sir, can you take this to the dump? We just dragged this thing for two miles. And he looked at me like, sure, this is the weird lady who swims naked. <laughs> Like, you know, million dollar people, they don't knock on each other's doors like that. So it was really cool. It was like this really cool collaborative action thing that we did that made us really happy. And you brought the million dollar house owner into it as well. That's very inclusive. It was cool. It was cool. And 
at first it was like, how dare you knock on my door? And it was fun. It was really fun. But that's what it reminds me that it's just a different paradigm of what is it that we're doing? Are we pulling on a rope like two dogs from different ends? Sometimes. And that can be fun. Or are we pulling so that it's stuck at the same time? Are we both pulling in the same direction? Pulling together. It's a good question. And if we're pulling in different directions, we're making that tarp tear. And sometimes I feel like that's what's happening with our medicine. Say more about that. Because I do think it is a serious problem that if our intention is to take it away from the other person, to make the other person wrong, there's no growth that happens for either of us. If we're having a conversation where, I mean, this is basic nonviolent communication. If we're having a conversation and the intention is that I'm right, we're not going to get anywhere. This is a pointless conversation when it's just about me wanting to convince you that you're wrong and that I'm right. I'm not learning anything in that conversation. And neither do you, because you think you're right. And you're going to walk away thinking Sabina's an arrogant snob. One more tick mark on the side of, uh, oh yeah, she's like that. She's one of those people. She's like that. Check. And it certainly happens at academic conferences. I mean, I've been in plenty of of rooms where that happens, especially if you have to posture in front of graduate students. It depends on the environment. If we're all trying to get students and show up as the experts and all of that, that's what we have to do. All right. So I think this is a really good segue into what we wanted to talk about today. <laughs> Which is what? Which is virtue. I mean, you're doing some writing on virtue. You're doing some writing on duh, aren't you? Yep. And medical ethics. Medical ethics is just the modern translation of the term that I'm more thinking about the Chinese term. All right. So tell us more about that. And I haven't figured it out. I mean, I basically, I wrote the, <laughs> I'm writing the book because I like to pick conversations and write books about things that I don't understand. That's a great reason to write a book. Well, yeah, right? <laughs> well, now, let's think about this for a moment, because many people will write a book because I really know this. That's boring. And I'm going to tell you, right? We're just talking about this in the like academic context when it comes to discussions, right? There's getting up and going, I'm the expert. I know this shit. Y'all listen to me. Oh, by the way, I got a book. Very authoritative. Yeah. Here you are. I'm going to write a book because, well, I'm interested in it. I'm not an expert in it, but I want to find out more about this. And so you use the book as your entree into the exploration. Absolutely. Yeah. I've been writing this book on Sun Miao's volume on Yangxing, on nurturing the innate nature for years. And I'm stuck. It's really, really hard. I've taken on more than I can chew. So I come back to it and it's just going to happen. I don't know. It may never happen. I've put like countless hours and months into it. And people are like, so how's that book coming along? I really want to read what Sun Tzu had to say about basically Yangsheng and alchemy and 
sexual cultivation. And I'm like, the book is going to take whatever it's going to take. And there is no timeline. So that one is on hold until I am a little bit wiser. I guess I'm really bad at Yangshan. So I need to write the book, but you have to grow into your books, right? Do you grow into your books? That's a really good question. I don't know. The only book that I've got with my name on it at this moment was somebody else's. I just translated it. I've got some other material that I'm working on, but it's, I mean, this is stuff that I write that goes on my website. That's not really a book. I can't wait for you to write your own book. You know that. It's in the works. <laughs> you don't get to edit this out of our conversation, by the way. I don't edit anything out except the ums and errs and, uh, 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 you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> Yeah, so this thing about virtue, so the characters, it's a phrase, Ida. Mm. E meaning medicine, healing, doctor, physician, healer, all of those things. And then does the character that we translate as virtue, but it's also the Dao De Jing, that character De, the mm -hmm. classic Lao Tzu, the classic of the Dao, and it's virtue or the classic of the Tao and its power, like in the earliest texts. And virtue, the English word virtue comes from V-I-R. It's derived from a Latin root that means power. Like virility, is it? V-I-R. Yeah. Vigor. I don't know if that's the same route. Okay, we're on murky. We're both <laughs> swimming in murky water. We're talking about something we don't know enough. <laughs> or at least I am. But there is a connotation mm. that originally, I'm more comfortable talking about the ancient Chinese route. Okay. Because that's I know more about that. Yeah. So the character originally, like Confucius talks about the ruler being like the pole star who's at the center of the universe and doesn't do anything. And he rules by his duh. That's why everything happens and all the stars rotate around him. Everything revolves around the ruler. The ruler just sits there by his presence, presence, charisma, the embodiment of authority, expertise. Mm -hmm. And you're not talking about authority here, like political authority. You're talking, correct me if I'm wrong, you're talking about the authority of someone who's a great musician. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They walk into the room, they pick up their instrument, and you already feel the feeling change. I mean, just the way they walk on the stage. Because they have that authority. Where does that authority come from? Years of practice, years of doing the work, years of understanding where you put a note and where you don't put a note and, and how you work with other people. Yeah. Right. And so it's the authority of having competence. Yes. And that's why Zhuang Tzu talks about the artisans, the Butcher Ding story, Lord Wen Hui asked Butcher Ding, and I'm working on the story with my students this very week. And it's really, I love the story where he invites the Butcher Ding. He watches Butcher Ding carve up an ox. 
and the guy performs it like a dance with a whoosh and a whack and a zip. the whole ox just falls apart and it's beautiful like a symphony and a dance and then the ruler asks him wow such skill i have never seen anything like this how is this possible and butcher ding responds what i love is the Tao which surpasses Qi, which surpasses skill. And then he goes on and he says, the average, the, the ordinary butcher has to change his knife every month because he whacks. Yeah, every month. And a good butcher changes his knife every year because he carves. And Butcher Ding has been butchering thousands of oxen and yet his blade is as sharp as coming as if it came straight from the whetstone because he lets his he does not go with his eyes he does not look with his eyes he lets the shun the spirit guide his blade into the empty spaces to use that which has no thickness to go through that which has space or something like that. Isn't that easy? And there's plenty of room to spare. And then every once in a while I come to a knotted area and then I slow down and I proceed with great caution and boom, just like that, the ox falls apart like the clod of clay, like a lump of clay that crumbles into the earth. And then he stands there, looks around to all four sides very proudly, wipes off his blade, puts his blade away, and says, that's it. And Lord Wenhui says, oh, Shanzai, oh, how, how amazing. I have obtained Yangsheng nurturing life through this. Butcher Ding has just shown me the secret to nurturing life. I love that story. I love hearing you tell the story. So a moment ago, you said you're not so good at Yangshan. Yet the work you do is a form of Yangshan. And in the story that you just told us, Yangshan was learned by observing someone skilled beyond skill the Tao that surpasses the skill. When you watch other people who are, they have skillful means and you recognize it, you see it, you feel it, you let it in. Indeed, that can change you. It's not like a magical, everything's fixed and okay from here on out, but it shifts your trajectory a little bit. Yeah. And that's what you do as a doctor, right? On a daily basis. Hopefully. And if you're a good doctor, you don't go out there and you don't take out your complicated apps and your computer and you're not like writing down all these symptoms and comparing them to different formulas and looking up your books and making this really complicated situation. You just take one look at the person and you kind of know how you're going to treat this person. Well. Okay, that is a lovely image. It's a really lovely image. And, and I know that we're all sort of given to that image. And, and I suspect many of us aspire to that. We, and we've watched teachers who could do that. 
And if we've done it long enough, we've probably had our moments where someone comes in the room and we're like, oh, I think it's like this. Unless you tell me otherwise, I already know what I'm going to do. I mean, that does, that can happen. That can happen. I think we have to be cautious here, Sabina, because we have this kind of fetishization of the master. And we think we're supposed to be able to like take a pulse and go, right, it happened when they were 13 and I know just what to do now, right? I mean, there's some very high level gong fu that can happen. I'm not denying it exists. It does. But in the day-to-day life of a physician, on occasion you get that kind of ice cream. But mostly, we're carving up oxes. And this is why I love having these conversations with you. Because, okay, here's the dose of reality, Sabina. Because I realize I get to fly in these ethereal realms of ideals. The classical texts, they describe ideals. Yes, and I'm all for heaven. I am all for the mandate of heaven. I am all for the inspiration of heaven. I really am. Love it to pieces. I feel like in our work as doctors, in our work as practitioners, we had, you know, TND Jan, right? We're the Jan. We the people. We're the people. We have to bring it into the earth. The earth is a clot of fucking mud. It's formed. It's solid. It doesn't change that easily. It takes time, skill, patience, a little gong fu. Yeah, and gong fu is hard work. Like when you're doing qigong and you just stand. Yeah. Someday you can stand for hours and you just like feel you've got the universe in your body. You just feel it, right? Some days it's just. I'm a bucket of mud. And other days you can barely keep your arm up. Yeah, Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the ideals are great and I love them. And I think it's worth always, I don't know where the word is striving, but moving towards, you know, being a little better at what we do, right? If we can find a way to, to get that needle in with a little more comfort, if we can hit that point in a way that enlivens it, without a lot of fanfare. Mm -hmm. I call that a good day. But a lot of the work is, I'm going through some books, like, okay, there's a thing and I don't know what that is. Yeah. I'm confused. I need to go consult with somebody. I need to go dig out the books. I need to take another look at this. Yeah. And I think if we do that enough, then on occasion, somebody walks in and we go, there it is. And you know what? It's absolutely the same for my translation work. You're absolutely right that I still do exactly the same thing, where sometimes I just, something falls into place. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, you're absolutely right. I do the digging. I do exactly. I've got all my dictionaries. I go back to Pulley Blank's grammar book all the time. Hello everyone, Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. 
You'll be familiar with Dumai, the Governor Channel or the Sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang, which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of Yang Qi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. See, so this is, I think, the difference between cultivation and the sort of flower or fruit of cultivation. And it's not helpful to conflate these two. The fruit of cultivation is that moment where you look over a tricky passage and you go, I see it, right? The fruit of cultivation is when a patient walks in our office we see the kind of car they drive up in. We we see the way they walk up to the door. We look at the color of their skin. We hear something about the way they say hello, and you know it snaps to grid. That's the fruit of cultivation. But the cultivation itself, it's going through your dictionaries. It's going through your notes. It's going through the books. Oh my God, I thought I understood that formula, but I can see that I was missing something. Yeah, and I'm thinking about in my own life, mastery, like, I feel like I'm pretty good at making goat cheese, much better than the translator. I take really big pride in the quality of my goat cheese. You don't take pride in, in your translations? You know, the older I get, I just wrote a blog about the fact that you just can't, that ultimately translation is never going to be adequate, which is why I now teach people how to read classical Chinese. It's impossible. I'm the queen of banging my head against the wall. So how is it that translation is not adequate? There is no way you can express a sentence. I mean, maybe it's fine with formulas, with lists of symptoms, with very straightforward clinical literature, with instructions, technical instructions. Nothing straightforward about clinic. Okay. I don't know about that. Thank you for that correction. <laughs> but when it comes to the Shanghan Lun, that's a pretty straightforward text. I mean, there are we can quibble over what exactly is meant by fa re and how is it different from fever or heat diffusion or whatever, but that's really tiny details. But generally, a formula text is pretty, you know, it's lists of symptoms, then you get ingredients. And yes, sometimes it's like, is it this subspecies of an herb? Could it have been replaced with this? But in general, and then what was a Liang in the Song dynasty or is it copied from the Han dynasty? So are we going with the amount? That sort of historical questions. But those are pretty minor questions that you can address with scholarship. But when we're looking at my book, The Humming with Elephants, Suwen Five, or a text like the Lao Tzu, Dao De Jing, or even in gynecology, a term like what I just wrote this little blog about, Yue Xin, 
which is a phrase for menstruation. Is Does year mean the moon? Does it mean monthly? Does it mean menstrual? In English, you have to pick a single word. In Chinese, though, we know that it means all of those. Exactly. So if I translate the word year in an English text as menstrual or menstruation, it takes away the moon and it strips away the very intentional and very conscious idea that is so central to classical Chinese gynecology that women's cycle of bleeding is directly related to and in resonance with the cycle of the moon and the tides and that it is as basic and natural and it is directly resonating it's not just a intellectual exercise but it is actually physically the movement of fluids any movement of fluids whether you're talking about gardening the ocean menstrual blood menstrual blood any fluid is affected by the cycle of the moon and if you translate year moon as menstrual you take that away you make the text more clinical you make it oh yeah very straightforward nice but if somebody who is just reading western literature who is just reading stuff in english never reads the classical chinese they lose a really important piece well i think this is probably then why you footnote your books the way you do why you add a little poetry while you have some side notes you have some commentaries you will often in your translation work when you've come up against something like this which is actually very textured very dimensional multiple overlapping meanings you tend to go into that and show us some of the nuance which is very different than say a clinical manual and clinical manuals are great i'm thinking of an herb book for example yeah. let's go to the shanghan lun the original herb book in a way right yeah in some ways, yes, it is very, very straightforward. But it's like taking a map, which shows you how to get from A to B, and here's some side roads and this and that. Okay, you've got the map, it can orient you so that when you get in the territory, you can make a little bit of sense. So on paper, medicine looks really easy. But that's just a paper map. Mm -hmm. Great. It's helpful. It orients you. It can help you make sense yeah. of that terrain when you're actually in it. And we're looking at a terrain that's very foreign. Well, it's Earth. Pretty foreign. Well, I'm thinking if I am somebody who's grown up in the desert and I'm looking at a map of the rainforest, which is the equivalent of a modern Western practitioner who's never lived in China, who doesn't know anything about traditional Chinese mm. culture, philosophy, yin yang, just the way of looking at the world, mm -hmm. the way of looking at humans, the way of looking at the role of ancestors. We have a very different way of thinking about what it means to be human than a Chinese person, even a modern Chinese person, I think. So, if you show somebody from the desert a map of the rainforest, 
they're not really going to get it until they enter that rainforest. Probably great fiction for them. Water everywhere? What? So I'm reading this book right now, and it's way over my head. And I wonder if you know it. The Master and His Emissary? I have taken a couple of whacks at it. It sounds really interesting, and I've talked to people that have talked about it. And yeah, look at us. Here we are digging into something we don't know much about. It's so over my head. The right brain and the left brain thinking. It's really, I love the way it enriches the way I think about what I do as a translator, Mm -hmm. as a right brain and a left, as a combination of right brain and left brain activity. Yes. Well, and here's something else. The Chinese language is very much a right brain phenomena. Western language is very much a left brain phenomena. So language is already tricky. So like one of the reasons we have poetry is because it's very difficult to put the numinous into words. And that's why we have poetry. And that's why we have great writers who can take something of incredible human experience that is beyond words and like wrap it in enough words that you can get a taste of it. So language already is a very limited lens into human experience. It's helpful. It's super helpful. I mean, look at, my God, we've been able to build civilizations and advance beyond scrubby critters living in a tree, right? Because we have language. It's it's truly an extraordinary capacity that we have as humans. And yet there's so much that you can't quite put into language. And, And as I was just saying, the Chinese language is very much symbolic and nuanced and, you know, it could go in a couple of different directions. And then you got Western language, which is very, it's like things are nailed down. Exactly. Chinese language doesn't really nail things down. The thing that drove me crazy when I was first learning Chinese yeah. is like, this is so damn nonspecific. You could wiggle your way out of anything in Chinese because you're being very nonspecific much of the time. Shamashaho, like when? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, shamashaho dokai. Like, well, you yeah. know, whatever. <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> I mean, there's all these, there's all these ways that they and can be a little Chinese specific. is way more specific than classical Chinese. Yeah. Right? Like in modern Chinese, generally you would, no, you still say yujing, so we just translate that as menstrual period. We just, you know, we just go into, oh, it's modern Chinese. We see you and we translate it as menstrual. And it's probably how modern Chinese see it. But still in Chinese, there's still the connection to the moon. And you could argue that it's there in English as well, but it's not there consciously. When you use the word menstrual, nobody in modern America Nobody in modern biomedicine or popular understanding makes that about the moon anymore. We just think it's the old history of that word. Isn't that quaint? Exactly. All right. I want to swing back to duh. It's kind of a slippery word, right? It is. Yeah, because like you were saying... Older Chinese, it also means power. And we're not talking about like power like I'm bigger and stronger, but power like the authority of someone who knows their stuff, Mm -hmm. right? The authority of a true king, 
not just someone who's the ruler because they beat up everybody else to get there, but. And that's what Confucius said. You rule the people with punishments and they will avoid doing wrong because of the fear of punishment. But that's not true rulership. Mm. You rule the people by the power of your example. Yes. By your presence. And that's that. And I think ultimately at some point, I have no idea how to talk about this yet, but it is about hierarchy. And we are so used to thinking about traditional Chinese culture as a hierarchic Confucianism as a hierarchical system, and we look down on it and we think we are so much more evolved because we're democratic. And I think we live in a culture right now that is very much, we live in a paradigm that's all about dominance. It's power over. And I think that there's something in the traditional, and I don't want to sugarcoat what happened in reality, but the ideal in traditional Chinese philosophy is an idea of power that is not power over. It's different. And they talk about how this power, the foundation of, of power and hierarchy is the relationship between parents and children. And it's not about making your kid. I look at my puppy. It's not about making the puppy fear me. I've never had to. I mean, I've not yelled at him, but I have flipped him over because he came from the pound and he's a teenager. And he, when he came, he was completely out of control and he had a really bad habit of jumping on people. So I'm the alpha dog. I jump on him and make sure he knows you can't jump on humans. You can't nip humans. So there is a power thing that happens between dogs and there's a power thing that as a parent, kids need structure and they need authority, but it's not about power over, right? You don't want your daughter to come home at night because she is afraid you're going to take her. I don't know if she's old enough. I forgot how old she is. She's driving, right? She's driving. She's driving. Yeah. You don't want your daughter to come home when you give her a curfew because she's afraid you're going to take the car key away. You want to have a relationship. This is how I raised my daughter. Mm -hmm. And it worked where I believe in giving her choices. I, and I believe, of course, I grab her and pull her out of the road if there's a car coming when she was five years old. I make sure she's safe. But... It's not about power over. Do you know what I mean? So let me take another tack at this because I think it'll illuminate whether I'm getting this or not, what you're saying. Yes, we often will look back at Confucian times and go, oh, it's a hierarchy, men on top, women on the bottom, bad, bad, bad. It's all about power. And you should know your damn place in society and stay there, right? Well... Here's something that I've noticed over time. There are people who are really good at what they do. They could be great writers. They could be doctors. They could be plumbers. It's good to know a really good plumber, right? So, like, why would you want to hire a really good plumber? Well, the reason is they're going to fix your problem. They're going to do it quickly. And they're not going to try to mess around with you because they just want to get the job done and get on to the next one because they're busy, because they're good at what they do and they're honest. Mm -hmm. 
people that are good at what they do, if they're really good at what they do, they're probably also honest because that tends to work better than not being honest. People don't like working with non-honest people. So there are people that rise to the top. I mean, think about the acupuncturist. I'm, all y'all's out there listening right now, like the acupuncturist you see, the dentist that you see, the cranial sacral therapist that you see, the restaurant that you love to go to. Why do you go there? You go there. You want to be involved with these kinds of people because they are at the top of their game. They're at the top of a hierarchy. How do they get there? Mm-hmm. They're good at what they do. They're not dishonest. People figure out dishonesty pretty quickly. And they don't like dealing, no one likes dealing with dishonest people. Yeah. Right? And someone's trying to put something over on you, like, like, like a schmarmy business person, they'll sell to you once. You will not go back ever again. Right. Right. If you know you've been taken. It's not a sustainable. It's not sustainable. And so there are people that are at the top of hierarchies because they're the king of the hill. And they're the king of the hill. Right. Because they have true authority because they've done the work. Now, are there corrupted hierarchies? Absolutely. And you see them everywhere. But I think it's really helpful to be able to distinguish, is it, or am I dealing with a corrupted hierarchy? Or am I dealing with actually a virtuous, let's call it a virtuous hierarchy? I know, and most of what we're dealing with, the element of virtue is missing. Is what? And that's why it's missing. And I think that's why this conversation is so important, whether you're talking about government, parenting, schools, any business anything. I feel like virtue is such a weird word, right? Like when, and I started really thinking about it when I started teaching, when I was exposed to Wang Fengyi's teachings, which is about, is about the five element virtue healing. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it's sometimes presented as a way to fix yourself and find happiness in this new agey, flu-flu kind of flu-flu, whatever the word is. It's not about healing yourself. That's not what Wang Feng Yi was about. It was about emptying out your garbage can and getting rid of the crap that holds you back so that you can let your heavenly nature shine like the mountain that you get rid of the clouds that occlude the big mountain that is each of our true innate heavenly nature. And we're not doing that because we want to be the beautiful mountain and we want to be happy and be in the sunshine and bask in the sunshine. We're doing it because we have a Ming. Each of us have a mandate. We're here to do good. And that's what I really love about the Wang Feng Yi's teaching, that Buddhist aspect. But it's Buddhist, Taoist, and Confucian. It's all of those things together that in order for us to really show up, it is about shining. I don't like shining forth. Like that's the quality of the lung in the Wang Feng Yi system, the Xiang Liang, the radiance of sound and light. And I think about metal a lot because I have a lot of metal in me. And a lot of my friend, you do too. I look at the background <laughs> behind you, Lillian. Bridges had was very metallic. My daughter, it's what it takes to be a good writer, that clarity, you know, that mm. sort of justice. But it has to be tempered with Ren, with humaneness, with 
the ability to put yourself in the other person's shoes. And that's why I love Mengzi, Mencius, Confucius's follower and his theory of the human nature, that it's really, it's this, if you have to sprout all humans, it, that's what it means to be human. To be human means to have Ren. And that's, you see a little baby run towards the well and you, your first instinct, whether you act on it or not, your first instinct is you want to grab that baby. You have an in gut response of concern when you see a little toddler running. Well, the modern equivalent would be towards the road. Mm -hmm. That's what it means to be human. And we all have that in us. And all we need to do is cultivate virtue. And it's really simple. And it's daily practice. Well, is it that we're cultivating virtue or are we just trying to get rid of the dang clouds? It sounds like the virtue, according to Mengzi, is there. Yeah, 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 yeah. We just got to take out the damn garbage and we all got plenty of garbage. And then there's the story about the farmer who was growing the rice, right? The farmer from Song who was pulling, the whole family went and planted all the rice shoots. I don't know that story. You don't know? No, I don't. I don't think so. Can I tell another story? Tell me the story. It's my favorite. I love these stories. And I love the fact that in my classical Chinese class, I get to revisit these stories and I get to see my students really struggle with these stories. And teaching them classical Chinese through the stories has really taught me in the last year how much there is in Chinese culture. And Chinese kids grow up with these stories. So there is a certain aesthetic or there are values of being in the world that in Chinese medicine, Chinese practitioners take for granted. Like the butcher ding story. Every Chinese person knows the value or Confucius, the pole star being like the pole star, the beauty of Wu Wei, of acting through non-intentional action, of going with the flow, you know. That is so hard for our Western mind. It's so easy to think, oh, wait, just means, yeah, whatever. Yeah. But it doesn't. And that's like really Wu Wei is, that's Chinese medicine in a nutshell. Well, there's a lot of things very simple in a nutshell that are enticing and sort of a call at your spirit and heart. Mm -hmm. But then you need a good 30 years to unpack it in actual chewing through the books kind of practice. Yeah, yeah. They look really simple on the surface. And I love that right now I'm, I get to dig deeper by teaching these stories to classical Chinese students. And I am learning the value of these stories in a much deeper way. Well, as we're talking about this, and we're going to get into the story here in just a second, okay? because I want to hear it. But I just want to put a pin in this because we might come back to it at some point. As we're having this conversation, I am thinking about the stories that I read when I was a kid that I loved that I read over and over and over and over. And they were Aesop's fables. They were the stories of the Greek and the Roman gods and goddesses and all their crazy, wild travails. And I read those stories over and over. And I, there was a period of time, I guess between the ages of like eight and 11 or something, I could not get enough of it. I would just read them again and again and again and again. And there's so much wisdom 
deep, condensed wisdom in those very simple stories. And, and of course, the Chinese have their own versions of it. As we're having this conversation, I'm thinking I might need to go back. You know, I've been looking at Chinese stuff now for a while. And I'm thinking I might need to go back and reread Aesop's fables to see what it has to say about Chinese medicine. And it's one of those wonderful things that when you're a parent, you get to do that with your kids. Yeah, my kid was already more grown than that one when we got her, so. <laughs> you got to just find random kids. Huh? I'm looking right now. <laughs> Sign me up to be your babysitter. I love kids. I think we could make it our summer reading project. Yeah, yeah. You know? Last year it was Animal Farm. Anyway, okay. I want to hear the story about the rice farmer. Okay. It's one of the most famous stories by Mencius Mengzi. Right up there with Butcher Ding. Right up there, yes. So, and I have to admit that I'm not the best at telling stories. I tend to get the punchline wrong. So bear with me if I get it wrong. You're a storyteller, not a comedian. Because I just have been working on it. So the Mengzi story. So the family goes out and everybody works really, really hard. And when you plant rice, you grow the shoots and then you transplant them. And it's like backbreaking work, really, really hard to put all the shoots in the water. And then the old guy, he goes out there and he looks at the rice shoots and he's like, I'm going to make them grow faster. And he goes through and he pulls each one a little bit to make it grow faster, to help it grow. And he works all day, sunrise to sunset, really, really hard. And he comes home, home at night and tells his family, they're all sitting around the dinner table. And he's like, oh man, I am exhausted. I worked so hard today. I was helping the sprouts grow, the shoots grow. And the kids are like, oh no, they jump up. They're like, what? Oh no, and they run out, but the shoots had already fallen over and withered. So the morale of the story is, and this is a story about, which is why I think it is a beautiful story for Chinese medicine practitioners. And it is preceded by this beautiful passage about the Haoran Zhiqi, where I forgot who it is, some ruler asks Mengzi, how come you're so good at what you do? What's your mastery? How come you're like, you have this presence at exactly what you're talking about? And Mengzi says, oh, I'm not good at anything in particular, except I cultivate my haoran qi, my flood-like qi. That's all I do. And what is this flood-like qi? It is of the ultimate hardness. It is of the ultimate goodness, but you can't force it. You can't make it grow. It has to develop naturally, and that's the idea with this story. How do you cultivate qi to attain this level of mastery? You can't force it. You can surround it with righteousness. And there's something in the introduction to the story that's really, really deep about where you do things on a daily basis. You cultivate it with your daily simple actions. And that would be the equivalent of you plant your shoots and you give it the water, the fertilizer, you protect them from weeds. And what does he say? Ah, ah, ah. 
most people in the world want to help the shoots grow. That's very common that you see them everywhere. And then there are people who say, oh, this is pointless. And they give up on weeding the shoots at all. Mm. They're just like, oh, it just has to do its own thing. I'm going to leave it alone. And really the trick is, how do you cultivate this flood like chi? How do you position yourself in this dance between pulling it and thereby destroying it? Like whether you're talking about medical practice or personal cultivation. Or government. Government, absolutely. Education. Mm. Agriculture. Everything. Mm -hmm. It's so relevant that it's this dance between pulling up the shoots to force them to grow and thereby hurting them or leaving them to fend for themselves because you don't want to hurt them. And then they get overgrown by weeds and maybe some of them will make it. And I think it's such a great analogy, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, for practicing medicine. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of chi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. Practicing medicine, raising children, growing a garden, having a marriage. Yeah. All of that, all of that, there is the attending that we do in proper measure within the moment of that season, right? The right thing at the right time, basically, the right thing at the right time. And knowing what the right thing is, not too much of it, and not too little of it. Good luck with knowing what that is. And then, okay, and so this is why I'm going to, I want to bring this back to hierarchy. This is why some people rise to the top of not a power hierarchy, a competence hierarchy, right? This is why you have people like Mungza that are kind of like at the top of, you know, the philosophical, you know, world there in China. Lillian Bridges, we organized a retreat. I had a dream and my dream told me I had to do this. And I was like, I've never done a retreat. This is ridiculous. I had to do a retreat where I had to get Lillian Bridges and Brenda Hood sitting on a couch talking with each other about female alchemy. Mm-hmm. And I made it happen. And it was like herding cats. And I got the two of them on a Zoom call. And they both decided that we had to call it the transformative power of yin. And I was like, I don't want to call it power. I don't want the word power. I want to get away from power because we're talking about yin. 
And they were, Lillian was very clear that we had to have the word power in the title. So I'm trying to make peace with the word power. Uh-huh. Okay. So you haven't made peace with it yet? No. Okay. Can I take a shot at this? Sure. Okay. Because I have trouble with power too. And authority for that matter. So of course, you know, I practice medicine long enough, I've, I've become an authority. You have to. At least in my neighborhood, at least in the area where I live, I'm an authority on Chinese medicine. Why? Because longevity, damn it. I've been around long enough and I've, you know, but help enough people, I've got some authority. Well, you have to. As a medical practitioner, people come to you. Yes. Okay. So I'm going to bring this back to power. I'm going to bring this back to hierarchy. A competence hierarchy is about authentically rising to the top because you have something of value to contribute. There is a kind of power in that. This is not power over. We were talking earlier in the conversation about like a tug of war. And then you were talking about your pals. We got this tarp. We want to get rid of the damn thing. And you all pulled together to get it off the beach and over to a resource who could take it to the dump. Which now sounds really corny. <laughs> I have to admit, it's like, oh, no. such a stereotypical thing. Well, I'm going to leave the judgment out of it here. I'm just recognizing what you did and using it as an example. There are forms of power that are rightly earned and deserved. Now, what you do with that power is another story. And being humans, many of us mm. could go to our head or we kind of like the feeling or I can get further in life or I could get to this or that or, you know, whatever. That said, there is a kind of power. I'm going to use the word righteous here. I mean, I don't mean righteous like, you know, pick up a sword and, and go to war righteous, but righteous in that it's authentic. Let's come back and talk about the pole star for just a second. Righteous is a really important word that we have to make peace with. I think you're absolutely right to bring that word. And that's easy. And let's face it. I'm going to come back to the yin piece. Yeah. And then I want to talk about the pole star, the transformative power of yin. If you suggest that yin doesn't have power, two things happen. Number one, you're lying. If you can't see the power that's there, th then you're blind or you're lying or you're leaving out something vital and useful. Mm -hmm. There is power in the end. Mm -hmm. And does that arise from power over? Does that arise through genuine duh, genuine virtue, genuine authority? That's a different kind of power. Right? That's the power of the emperor or empress or the sovereign. Let's call it the sovereign. Sitting in the middle, pole star goes around the sovereign. When I think of that image, I think of gravity. Sovereign has gravity. Somebody with mm -hmm. like deep authority and authenticity and power, those folks have gravity, man. They walk in the room. Gravity. Feels different. They, mm -hmm. I think that's a great word. Okay. So transformative power of in, there's a certain gravity in that. We're fools to ignore it. And if you have the opportunity to use it for good, don't waste it. When you're just talking, gravity is a good word. 
in our conversations, I'm always like trying to translate it back into Chinese because in mm. way, it's easier to talk about it in Chinese. Okay. So in Chinese, how does it sound? Well, duh doesn't, I mean, I'm talking in classical Chinese philosophical terms because mm. my modern Chinese is, I'm not going to make a fool of myself here. It's been too long. But the term duh is what we would translate power with when we're talking about the Shang dynasty or the Zhou dynasty. And the has so many different dimensions beyond power. But it all the power is interwoven with it. Absolutely. So we are kind of stuck. And I think that's my frustration these days is I'm trying to open people's eyes to a different way of being in the world based on my understanding of what the classical, the ideals in the classical philosophy and medical texts and poetry. I'm trying to open people's eyes to that world. And at the same time, if I do it in English, I'm always using English words. And what does power mean? What does hierarchy mean? We think of power as power over. We think of it as dominance. We think of it as whether, like even in education, when I think about graduate school, the way my professors taught, when you think about policing, when you think about cooking school, that whole paradigm, which is shifting in a lot of areas where how do you teach? Education is kind of my thing. I've thought a lot about education. Well, I hear you talking about power, and I get it. I have struggled against it my whole life. Yeah. Thinking about authority, I get it. I've struggled against it my whole life. And now I'm in a place in my career, in my life, having lived long enough, I'm an authority in certain areas. It gives me a certain kind of power. All of us that do medicine have to come to terms with power because whether we like it or not, our patients see us in a position of power. Absolutely. And what we do with that is really important. And one of the things that we should not do with it is abdicate it. Absolutely. And I think the same is true for me. And I'm not comfortable. And it's taken me decades to step into this. Mm. I am the expert. This is what I do. This is I've developed this approach to doing something, to teaching classical Chinese or whatever. I've been reading classical gynecology texts for 30 years. So if somebody comes from a modern perspective and tells me, oh, I wouldn't translate the Zhu Bing Yuan Ho Lun like that. I'm like, who are you to question me on this? You know, it's like, excuse me? <laughs> so, well, and again, are we talking old Chinese? Are we talking modern Chinese? There's that to be made. But yes, again, there are places where we have something to say. There are places where we have learned a thing or two. Yeah. Usually by less painfully gained. Yeah. And we owe it to the profession. We owe it to our Ming mm. to step into that. And part of that is age. When I turned 50, it was like, I'm an old lady and you're not going to mess with me anymore. Good for you. I don't really care. <laughs> I like being an old lady. 50 is, is truly a transformative experience. It can be. That's a really interesting one. I've, I've met people... 50 kind of breaks them because they're no longer young and, and they're still holding on to it. And then I've met people where 50, it breaks them 
they're no longer young and there's a whole bunch of stuff where you can just go, you know what? That ain't me anyway. And you let it go. Oh my goodness. Now you've got a lighter load to, to carry. You can do a lot. And then our dear friend Lillian, you know what she says about after 60. What'd she tell you? This is what she told me. These are some of the wisest words I have ever heard. And I miss her. So I'm glad we could bring her up for just a moment, you know? I think about her every day. I Every yeah. interaction, every class I teach. Mm. And I feel like losing her has forced me in a way to step into my role because I can no longer send all my students to Lillian. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's like turbocharged my need to step into my own power. And trust me, Michael, it's like, it's kicking and screaming. It's been, I feel like I've gone through this year of mm -hmm. total stepping into my power. And I know that's what Lillian wants me to do. And I'm totally channeling Lillian. And, and this is the power that we're talking about. We're not talking about the power over, we're talking about the power of cultivation, the power of connection, the power of having some capacity that we can help other people with. So what did she tell you? This is what she said to me. She said, after the age of 60, you can no longer use your will for what's not in your best interest. I'm going to say that again in case y'all didn't hear it. After the age of 60, you can no longer use your will for what's not in your best interest. So if you get into your 60s and you're working hard and some stuff is failing, it ain't yours. And of course, the trick is to have the clarity. And that's where that Ming, the sun and the moon, that character comes in, mm. which goes the Ming and the Ming and the Ming. The Ming, the clarity, and Ming, the name, the role, and Ming, uh -huh. the man. Ming, the destiny. What Lillian calls the golden path, and then the relationship between these three terms. <laughs> your best interest, that's your Ming. And the trick is to... Three Ming, San Ming. Ming by to Ming, Ming's it a Ming. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Ming destiny yeah. to Ming. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man, oh, man. It's always fun hanging out with you. And that's what virtue is to me. It's showing up for your Ming. Mm -hmm. Because we're all here, and that's what losing Lillian within months. Last spring, I saw her about this time, and none of us knew. So I've been thinking about her a lot. It's spring and she's not around. I miss her every day. I cry about her every day. And it's been a huge wake-up call. We're here to do work and we don't know. And Lillian completed her Ming. She did. She recorded all her teachings and she created the Lotus Institute and she taught so many students and Deirdre and Kelly and her son and her daughter-in-law are continuing her work. She completed her Ming. And has invited you to step more wholeheartedly into yours. Everybody, every, so many of the people I intersect with have interacted with Lillian, have stepped into their Ming and have found their Ming 
because of very short conversations or long trainings with her in her face reading group. Um, yeah, absolutely. Well, someday at some point, we would like to circle around and we can dig into Ming as well. Someday when I'm ready, but I will need like a two-year sabbatical with zero distractions, which is not going to happen anytime soon. I'm yeah, gonna, that's never going to happen. You're a human life on the planet. That ain't happening. No, it, it has to happen, Michael. And I'm going to write a book, and it's called Lillian's Book of Ming, mm. because Lillian and I were Lillian wanted to write a book about Ming, and I have been talking with her about it for years, and I need to write that for her. So that is that is on my. But I'm not ready. Well, I suspect that you will use your da to write about Ming. Yeah, I need to cultivate my da for. Well, we all need to cultivate our da. We can all use a little. For many, many years through my little actions of being kind at the grocery store and dropping goat cheese off with the neighbors and all of the little daily actions. that Those little daily actions are not little and they're not easy. And they're really important. They're really important. You know, we say things like this all the time. Oh, just this little thing like being nice at the grocery store. Yeah, really? When you're in a hurry and that person in front of you has taken up extra six minutes because they can't find the damn coupon and, and the checkout person is a little bit incompetent and now they have to re-enter everything. And I'm going to be a little bit kind. Yep. That's not easy. You know, we, we like to say it's easy. Well, oh, it's like a baby step. Baby steps are not small and they're not insignificant to a baby. And this is how you, literally, this is what Mengzi said. This is how you cultivate the flood-like chi. All right. Well, it ain't easy. And you get lots of opportunity. And it's as easy. It is. This is what Mengzi says. It's as easy as rolling things in the palm of your hand. Because the mountain is in you. <laughs> One of these lovely things that sounds nice, but when the rubber hits the road, work, baby. And that's why people rise to the top of these competence hierarchies, because they do that work. You know someone authentic when you meet them. Yep, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, we should probably land this plane. Oh, no, you're sending me on the next plane. Oh, we're, we're, we're having one of those horrible airport food. <laughs> no, no, airports are great. They take you to somewhere far away, time zones away. People complain all the time. Oh, my God, I had so much trouble at the airport. I'm just glad we have airports and I can fly somewhere lovely. Yeah, I'm getting on the plane next month to see my daughter. Yep. Good. Yep. yep. There you go. You're awesome, Michael. I really appreciate your work and what you do and your tireless commitment. Yeah, well, I'm kind of a bonehead sometimes. I think that helps. <laughs> it goes for both of us. <laughs> and. Yep. Yeah, so there's the part of me that's a bonehead and I just kind of keep at it because I'm just like doggedly, you know, I'm like the opposite of Butcher Ding. You know, I'm the guy who needs a new knife every three months because, you know, I've been hacking mine to pieces, but I got the capability of building a new knife. So, you know, I have at it. There's that as well. Well, no way, Michael, look at how much stuff you're producing. If you were not enjoying doing these podcasts, a normal person, there's no way they would be able to produce 
the amount of geological podcasts and courses, you are flowing with it. You're dancing in it because you have gotten to be an expert at it. I don't know about dancing. I do get enjoyment and I get enormous amounts of appreciation welling up in me from folks like you sitting down for a conversation like this, honest, unscripted, who knows where it's going to go. And then we get to share it with our community. That kind of lights me up a little bit. Yeah. That keeps me going yeah. for sure. But as you and I both know, there's all kinds of extra work that goes in that no one ever knows about. You look at books like you do and you know, I, I can glimpse a little bit of the effort in it because I've translated one book, but you know, you've done all of these and you know, the Chinese language is, it's deliciously tricky, which makes it really fun and really annoying at the same time. But I, I think it comes down to, and we share this, and I think a lot of our colleagues share this, if you've done medicine for any length of time and been able to stick with it, not have it run you over, it kind of gladdens your heart a little bit in some way. It's hard work as it is. And, and I suspect that is all part of cultivating duh. It's the authority that comes from doing the work, not the authority that comes from a certificate or I passed this or I got this title or whatever. It, it's not that authority. It's the authority of knowing what's in the book enough that you don't need the book that much. You know, it's the authority of someone can walk into your office. You may not, and you probably won't know what's going on with them the moment that you see them, even though we love having that idea that we can, but you've got the capacity and the persistence to figure out what is going on. I just had a little insight for me that I may at this point right now not be good at Yangsheng. And if I came to you as a patient, oh, you'd yell at me right now. I would not. I do not yell at patients and I don't tell them what to do. <laughs> It'd be very obvious to you that right now I'm not, I've been working way too many hours on the computer for the last year and a half. And so I'm not good at the Yangsheng, the nurturing life part. But I think what I am doing is Yangsheng. Mm -hmm. your innate nature, which is the title of Sun Sumiao's volume on this topic, which is not the same thing as Yangsheng. Okay, we're at the end of our podcast here, and you just opened up a whole <laughs> new topic. Okay, if y'all have stuck with us this far, well, too bad for you. I hope you found it helpful. This could be fodder for another conversation, but give us a quick glimpse into this. Yangxing. Well, it goes back to the mountain, the Xing. That's your in nature. That's your heavenly nature. And you uncover the clouds. So you get rid of all the, the story, the trauma, the baggage that you got from your childhood, the baggage that you got from what happened to you in your education and everything that's holding you back. We were talking earlier about being introverts. I mean, who knows why? I was terrified of speaking in public when I was in high school. And here you and I both are fairly comfortable at speaking in public. Like that's the shing. That's our innate nature. And it's our job to get rid of the mountains because we're born with a certain shing that's like an endowment, our ming. And 
We are so lucky. Each of us have that peace. And I think that's what I always want people to walk away from conversations like this with is think about what you have, what the gift is that the universe has given you to give to the world. And it's your main to let that gift shine and to step into your power, your expertise with your gift. You have that gift for a reason. And it takes some work. Yeah, it, it takes a lot of work. You got to polish that, Jade. Not, yeah, going up to the mountain. It's, it's you got to go uphill. All right. Well, my friend, as ever, a delightful time. Until next time. Until next time. Thank you, Michael. I always so enjoy my conversations with Sabina. She has one foot in the world of ancient Chinese and the other in this modern moment. Her translations have both depth and whimsy. She invites Zhuangzi in to comment on Suwen 5. She sits with the spirit of Sun Miao when considering Yangsheng and brings in the orderly vision of Kung Fu Tzu to see how we might orient ourselves toward the Tao. The questions of who we are and how we are can give us a lifetime of inquiry, and I appreciate how Sabina is able to bring something, the wisdom of the ancients, into our modern conversations. I hope that you have enjoyed this conversation, and if you did, you might want to check out the conversation that she and I had on Medicine and Meaning. It's in the catalog of our on-demand geological live offerings, uh, along with presentations from Toby Daly, Brian McMahon, Thomas Sorensen, Brenda Hood, Dan Bensky, and Zev Rosenberg. Visit the website to check those out. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community.